Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into these special topics. We are going to be doing something a little different this evening. Uh, Five years ago, we embarked upon a weekly program that had me responding to any question you sent to me in my inbox. Now, this is what has led, of course, to this evening's program, Special Topics. Uh, Consequently, over the course of the past five years, we have talked about many things, just not apologetics, that discipline of defending the faith, but also spirituality, politics, whatever it was that you wanted to talk about. Now, in those many questions you have asked me about why the Catholic faith believes in this or that, whatever the topic may be, for this evening, I thought it would be helpful to offer you a condensed version, if you will, of those programs in the form of a top 10 questions I have been asked about the Catholic faith. So in this condensed version, my hope is that I am providing you with a resource to listen to whenever you are wondering about some of the subject matter we are going to talk about tonight. So with the top 10 and the limited time we have to get through this, I do just want to jump right in. Uh, Number 10, are your beliefs found in the Bible? Brothers and sisters, All Catholic beliefs can be found in the Bible in some form, whether plainly or by an indirect indication. For example, the teaching on the Immaculate Conception. One can find a seed in Luke chapter 1, verse 28. If you're to go there now, open up your Bible, what do you read? Something like, Rejoice, O highly favored one. Now, that translation is... One translation that you get from the Greek, kekartomene. The better translation is probably hail full of grace. However you want to cut it, what's important for us to understand is that that verse, Luke one twenty-eight, in the Greek, is a perfect participle. Now, for those who, of you who do not know what that is, that's an action completed in the past. So, when the angel Gabriel salutes Mary with this title, hail full of grace, He is saying to Mary, you who has been fully graced, fully endowed with the plentitude of grace at the moment of your conception. Earlier I was talking about the seed. By seed, what we have is a deeper understanding into Mary who is uh, immaculately conceived. That is to say, uh, she was born without the stain of original sin. She was still saved by the merits of Jesus Christ, but nonetheless was she Uh, born without the stain of original sin. That being said, responding to the question, it is not necessary for everything to be absolutely clear in Scripture alone, okay? Because that is not the teaching of sacred Scripture itself. Scripture also points to an authoritative church and tradition. What does St. Paul say in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15? Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter. So there you have 
by word of mouth and or by letter, sacred tradition and sacred scripture. Uh, we also see tradition referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. All of these reference this sacred tradition. What else could we say here? Well, when the first Christians had a significant disagreement, they held a council, right, which made binding decrees. This is what we have in the book of Acts, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 29. So the very books of the Bible had to be determined by the church, and that just didn't happen overnight, right? But that came to us in the late 4th century at the Council of Hippo, 395 A.D., right? There were a lot of letters going from one church to another, but it wasn't until the end of the 4th century that we actually came to an agreement on the canon of the New Testament, those 27 books that we know today. Something else here. Christ died in roughly 33 A.D., and the first letter in the New Testament was not written till roughly 53 A.D. So you have 20 years of a salvific saving hierarchy. Christ did not abandon the church for 20 years. No, he says, lo, I will be with you always. And he was, by virtue of the gift of the Holy Spirit, working and operating in and through the church. Okay? So uh, sacred tradition and authority were very much necessary for us to even have the Bible today. All right, number nine. Why do you call your priest father? Uh, I'm sure this question comes to us because of that passage from Matthew 23, verse 9, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. In this passage, my friends, Jesus is teaching that God the Father alone is ultimately the source of all authority. But he is not speaking absolutely, because if so, that would what but eliminate even Biological fathers, uh, the title church fathers, the founding fathers of a country or, or organization, and so on and the like. Jesus himself uses the term father in the Gospel of Matthew on more than one occasion. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus actually presents Lazarus as using the address Father Abraham twice. There are so many verses we can uh, speak to here. St. Paul also uses the term when he writes, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He refers to Isaac, how but as our forefather in Romans chapter 9, verse 10. So it's very important, once again, to know that when we interpret sacred scripture, we always do so within the larger framework of its context. All right, number eight, why do you pray for the dead? I get this one a lot. First, let me ask you this. What is the value of any one prayer? As many have speculated, we can suspect that it is far greater than any of us can imagine. And by that I mean prayer really does change things, my friends. Prayer is very important. Even if we don't experience its immediate effects, praying for the dead <laughs> is quintessential. You know, we so often say that after those who pass away are in a better place. But Scripture doesn't say that we go right to heaven when we die. No, indeed, what we know is that there is a brief stopover at the judgment seat of Christ. What do we read from the letter to the Hebrews? Chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. 
St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So our deceased loved ones go to the judgment seat of Christ, and that, my friends, is worth praying about. But the question that prevails, and I think a question that is implicit in your question, is this. What is the judgment in question for those who lived faithful lives? Well, in such cases, the judgment is not merely about the ultimate destination of heaven or hell. The judgment in question would seem to be, is my work in you complete? Huh? Indeed, the Lord has made all of us a promise. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a beautiful promise, staggering promise. And yet most of us know that we are not in such a state now. And thus, when we send our faithful loved ones to judgment, though we send them with hope, we are aware that finishing work may be necessary, purification necessary before entering heaven, of which Scripture says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, that nothing impure will ever enter it. Again, this is worth praying about. Now, uh, this, I think, brings our attention to purgatory. Huh? What is the biblical foundation to even uh, believe purgatory to be true? Well, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, where St. Paul says of purgatory, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day, capital D, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You see, my friends, what does St. Paul just say there? Think about that passage critically. You will be saved, but not until you pass through the fire, the purgation, the purification. Yes, there is fire, but it is a healing fire. There are tears too, for Scripture says regarding the dead that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How consoling and merciful our prayers must seem to our beloved, my friends, who have died. How prayers must seem, like as one priest put it, a gentle wind that speeds them along onward and upward toward heaven. Now, <laughs> number seven has more or less been answered, but this is a, a question I get. If you die tonight, do you think you would go to heaven? Well, <laughs> given what we just said, maybe not. But this question does allow us to ask or talk about something else. Catholics have an assurance of salvation if they are faithful and keep God's commandments, like you, okay, if you are non-Catholic. What we have to appreciate here is that in the end, each and every one of us are called to live according to the commandments. And as I just spoke to it with respect to our judgment, ultimately in the end, whether or not we would be in heaven upon the moment we died is entirely upon all of the preceding moments we spent here on earth. Okay? All right. To question six. 
why do you obey the Pope? Catholics believe that Jesus commissioned St. Peter as the first leader of the church, right? Matthew's gospel has the most direct biblical indication of the papacy. What do we read there in Matthew 16, verses 18 to 19? And I tell you, you are Peter, meaning literally rock, and on this rock I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So based on this statement of Jesus himself, Peter is clearly portrayed in the New Testament as the leader of the disciples. Peter, in fact, is mentioned three times more than any other apostle for this reason. Often when we hear the authority of the Pope, we equate it with infallibility. But in reality, um, the Pope's exercise of infallibility is very rare. And when he does offer a solemn proclamation of infallibility, and there's only been a few cases, it is still yet a teaching that is rooted in sacred scripture. Remember what we just said about the Immaculate Conception. What's more, and I think this is really important for us based upon the conversations I have with you, infallibility does not mean that absolutely everything a pope says or does is free from error. Ultimately, my friends, the role of the pope and the magisterium, the teaching body of the church, cannot go against truth. Truth is absolute and unchanging. All Christians believe that God protected Holy Scripture from error by means of inspiration, even though sinful, fallible men wrote it. We Catholics believe that God the Holy Spirit protects His church and its head from error by means of infallibility, even though sinful, imperfect men are involved in it. And if that sinful and imperfect man was, in fact, the Pope, well, Look at the history of the Catholic Church. There's been some bad popes, yet what does Jesus say? I will be with you always. We can be assured that even in the midst of a papacy that is more ambiguous than clear, in the end, truth will always win out. And by that I mean specifically the role of the Catholic Church to bear witness to the truth of Revelation itself. All right, to the next question. Why do you pray to idols or statues? My dear friends, no Catholic who knows anything about the Catholic faith has ever worshipped a statue. Uh, that is pagan idolatry. If we cherish the memory of mere political heroes with statues and that of war heroes with monuments, then there can be no objection to honoring saints and righteous men and women. I was just in Washington, D.C., you know, and I had the wonderful experience of going through all the Smithsonian's, going inside the White House, visiting the Capitol. I also went over to uh, the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument, the World War II Memorial, the, the Vietnam Memorial. Right? These monuments, these memorials are a way of remembering. They are points of reflection to appreciate those who have gone before us. This is what the Catholic Church does with they're quote-unquote statues, right? To go before a statue and to look at a statue, say the statue of St. John the Baptist, we are simply recognizing the greatness of St. John the Baptist. And yes, rightfully, calling upon his prayers, because rightfully, saints share in the one mediation of Jesus Christ. I'll talk more about that here in a bit. What do we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. 
Statues are a visual reminder of great saints and heroes of the faith who are more alive in the courtroom of God than we can ever imagine. The saints, my friends, in heaven were never intended by God to be cut off from the body of Christ here on earth. They are intimately involved in intercession. And they are, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 reminds us, as a great cloud of witnesses. Okay, to question number, uh, I think we're on number five. Uh, Why do you confess your sins to a priest? My dear friends, Jesus Christ gave his disciples, and by extension priests, the power not only to loose sins, that is forgive in God's name, but also to bind, that is to impose penances. What do we read in Matthew 18, verse 18? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. John chapter 20, verse 23. A very important verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So the priest serves as the representative of God and of his mercy. Brothers and sisters, confession gives new courage, confidence, and a fresh start. By virtue of confession, I think one learns the virtue of humility, receiving additional graces in order to avoid sin, and at the same time, attaining a certain disposition towards forgiveness. Confession is vitally important, and we have once again, at the very least, if not an explicit and implicit reference to it in Matthew 18, 18 and John chapter 20, verse 23. All right, to the next question, to question number three. I mistakenly said last one was five, but that was four. To question number three, why do you worship Mary? Catholics do not worship Mary. We simply venerate her because she is the mother of God, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Veneration is completely different from the adoration of God. Okay, It is the honoring of a person, not the worship of Almighty God, our Creator. Catholics believe that Mary is the highest of God's creatures because of why? Well, her exalted role, right? But of course, like any other human being, she had to be saved by the mercy of God. I just referenced this when I was talking about Mary as one who was immaculately conceived. What do we Read in Luke chapter 1, verse 47. Mary herself says, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So we believe that God saved her by taking away all stain of original sin at the moment of her conception. The very fact that God took on flesh and became man indicates that he wished to involve human beings in his plan of salvation for mankind. Mary was a key person for this purpose. So this is why Catholics honor her so highly and turn to her as a mediator. I know here is where I often get the question as it relates to 1 Timothy 2.5, and I said I'll talk about that here in a minute, and here we go, 1 Timothy 2.5, there we read, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Left alone, my friends, (laughs) this verse appears to be certainly at odds with the whole idea of man's call to mediate. But in context, it puts the scope of intercession into its proper framework. What do I mean? Well, consider 
just a few verses earlier, that St. Paul was urging prayers of intercession. Read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So clearly, St. Paul wants us to see that our prayers of intercession are good and pleasing, as he said, in God's presence, and that all petitions of intercession find their proper conduit, if you will, in and through Jesus Christ. The key for us here is to understand that we share in the one mediation of Jesus Christ. And of course, we do this by virtue of baptism, where we, where we are incorporated into the mystical body of Christ. Mary did this par excellence. The God-man was inside her womb. And be assured, we don't offend God by going to Mary if God first beat us to it, huh? All right, to the next question. Why do you worship wafers? Well, (laughs) a consecrated host or wafer at a Catholic Mass is transformed on the altar to the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So, The wafer, my friends, is not merely bread, but rather Jesus himself. So we worship Jesus, not a wafer. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 51 to 56, Jesus states repeatedly that he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And yes, be assured, he is speaking literally. Uh, And if he wasn't, his own apostles, his own followers, would not have objected to him in verse 66. What did the apostles, his own followers, say? Who can hear this? Jesus was not speaking in symbolic terms. St. Paul very much agrees with this interpretation and writes that those taking communion in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. In the Last Supper discourse, my friends, nothing suggests a metaphorical or symbolic interpretation of what Jesus was saying in John 6. In point of fact, the Last Supper was the Jewish feast of Passover. This involved a sacrificial lamb, and Jesus referred to his own imminent suffering as the one who would be slaughtered as the Lamb of God. Is this not what John the Baptist called him, all the way back in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus was the Lamb of God who was to be slain for the atonement of the sins of the world. And what's important for us to remember is that you are not saved during that first Passover unless you what? But ate of the flesh of the Lamb. That was part of the prescription for being saved in Exodus 12. So it is. We actually eat the flesh of the lamb. All right. Finally, to this last question, the number one question I get asked in this realm of apologetics, are you saved? Catholics can be as sure as anyone else that they are in God's good grace to the degree that they remain in the sacraments that Christ came to establish. 
The Apostle John states that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh-huh. But, as I've already suggested, this assurance has to be understood in light of John's other teachings. What do we read in uh, his first epistle? Chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Verse 18 of the same chapter, 1 John 5, verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not sin. He who loves God should love his brother also, 1 John 4, 21 says. St. Paul does not regard salvation as a one-time event, but as a goal to be sought after, one that can in fact be lost. This is what he intends to mean when he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. These same words are hinted at in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Philippians chapter 3, verses 11 to 14, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Time and time again, the St. Paul call forth this deeper understanding of what it means to be faith, that it is never just about faith, but faithfulness. Just not an ascent of belief into the unknown, but the firm response that comes with that belief. So you ask me as a Catholic, am I saved? I say, by the grace of God go I, I'm working that out each and every day. And I do so in the light of those passages that we have referenced. Amen? Amen. All right, I hope this evening was more than just a fire hose <laughs> and reflections that you can uh, chew on and to reflect with as you think about, ultimately, some of the questions or teachings that the Catholic Church hands on, uh, and hopefully, if nothing else, my points of reflection for you this evening are points of reflection that need more conversation, at the very least, to the degree that we seek deeper understanding of what the Catholic Church holds in the deposit of faith. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.